Let's pray. And so, Lord, we, we fall under your heavy grace, and we lay in wonder and awe. God, we pray that you would do a work of deepening grace in our hearts. We know from the psalm that he prays, Great peace have they who love your law, who love your word, and nothing can make them stumble. And so, Lord, we come to you. We, we seek your peace, Lord, in a, in a restless world, a world full of turmoil. God, we know that there's restlessness and there's brokenness and there's people dying and people being forced out of their homes. We think of the Syrian refugee crisis. We think of the, the, the killing in Iraq and, and throughout the very hot spots of our world. And we think of that here in Baltimore as well. And so, God, we pray for peace. We pray for peace in this city. And we ask, God, that you would do a deepening work of peace in the hearts of these young ones through your word and us as well. So we commit this uh, to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to Faith and welcome to our message series on Guarding the Gospel from uh, Galatians. We, uh, we launched that last week. Uh, we recognized that Paul, of all of the letters that he started, and this was the first of his epistles, the first letter that he wrote, this is the only epistle, instead of using words of thanksgiving and praise, he launches off with anger and outrage. He is really, really upset that the Galatians were so quick in deserting uh, the one who called them by grace. And, they, and he's launching into this uh, rebuke, really, right at the beginning. Uh, they had embraced a different gospel that really was no gospel at all. And so we're reminded in the gospel and in this book of Galatians that we have to fight. We have to guard uh, the good news. Uh, it's like they were totally unaware, like a frog in a kettle that you've put into water. And the frog doesn't even know that he's getting cooked as the temperature is rising. Well, in Galatians, the cultural forces against the gospel were rising to the point that they were totally unaware that they had actually deserted uh, the gospel. And so Paul begins to make a case as we saw last week, about what the gospel was. And he reminds us what the gospel is. And he was telling us in that last passage in, verse, in the chapter 1 that the gospel of Jesus Christ is an event that has taken place. It is good news of Jesus' coming. It is not good works that we do. It is something that we need rescue. And so he says that he gave himself for our sins and delivered or rescued us from this present evil age. It is not a good works that we, through, through religious activity, somehow find acceptance be, before God. It is something that we receive. It is a gospel of good news, unmerited favors, the gospel of grace. And so we saw last week that Paul is establishing and just giving parts of what this gospel is and he's also establishing his apostolic authority. He's establishing the reality that 
he has the truth and that there were false teachers in Galatia who were trying to, who, trying to persuade them away from that good news. And so we find in the later part of the chapter 1 that Paul is giving kind of his biography or our biography of his journey as an apostle. And he talks about how he used to be a persecutor of the church and he would, he would bring people uh, to death who were Christians. And then he had this experience, this road to Damascus encounter with Christ, and it changed everything for him. And he went to Damascus, and we find that Paul actually spent three years in some type of seminary environment where he was learning from Christ direct revelation about this gospel and how Jesus Christ was the Messiah, uh, the Christ that had come. We find later that he came to Jerusalem 14 years later and that he met with the apostles. And he said that he brought Titus with him, who was a Gentile. And at that point, Titus wasn't required to be circumcised. He was a believer. He accepted Christ, and he was welcomed by the apostles. Uh, there were some people that didn't like that, the Judaizers who wanted him to be circumcised, but the apostles protected uh, Titus and, and that whole experience. And we find that Paul was received by the other apostles, and he was encouraged, and Peter was given the gospel to focus on the, the Jewish uh, population, where Paul was given the gospel to go to the Gentiles. He said, the only thing that they asked me to do was to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do, he said. And so, but there was a drift away from the gospel. And what we find is that Paul has to encounter and directly confront Cephas, who is actually Peter. So let's consider chapter 2, starting with verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentiles, sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. So where do you get the courage to face your challenges? Where do you find strength to engage 
the overwhelming forces that threaten to crush you. Well, this, this past week, uh, our mayor, Stephanie Rollins-Blake, announced that she would not run for the upcoming mayoral election in order to focus on the city's future and not her own. And many would say that her move not to run for mayor was an act of courage. Um, our Maryland governor said, it takes courage and strength to lead one of America's great cities, and Mayor Stephanie Rollins-Blake stood up and has served the city she loves for over a course of two decades. Now, regardless of what many people may think about her leadership, there are a few mayors that have ever been faced with the kind of challenges that this city has been faced with. And our commitment as a people of faith, our call is to pray for our leaders. First uh, Timothy 1 tells us to pray for all those in authorities. And so we as a church need to be mindful of that call to pray for our mayor, to pray for the city council, and to pray for our leaders in this nation. But where do you get the courage to face your overwhelming challenges? There's a man by the name of Kifa Sampangi, a pastor in Uganda, and he tells where he got his. It was Easter 1973 in Uganda, groaned under the terror of Idi Amin. He had slaughtered over 300,000 people, and the church was the primary target. Still fresh in Pastor Kifa Sampangi's memory was a face burned beyond recognition. The sight of soldiers cruelly beating a man. The horrible sound of boots crushing bones. All for the crime of being Christian. But that Easter of 1973, Sampangi bravely and openly preached on the risen Lord in his town's football stadium, and over 7,000 people attended. After the service, five of Idi Amin's secret police followed Simpangi back to his little church and closed the door behind him. Five rifles pointed at Simpangi's face. We're going to kill you for disobeying Amin's order, said the captain. If you have something to say, say it now before you die. And Simpangi was thinking of his wife and his little girl, and he began to shake. But the risen Lord, living in his heart, gave him courage to speak, and this is what he said, do what you must. The word of God says that in Christ I am already dead, and that my real life is hidden with him in God. It is not my life that is in danger, my friends, but yours. I am alive in the risen Lord, but you are still dead in your sins. May he spare you from eternal destruction. The leader looked at Simpangi for a long time, and then he lowered his gun, and the other guns followed. And he said, will you pray for us? Simpangi did, and from that day, those five officers, now converted through the witness of Simpangi's bravery, protected the pastor with their very lives. I call that gutsy gospel boldness. <laughs> Gutsy gospel boldness. Now, many years uh, before this, another leader was faced with overwhelming forces that sought to crush him. And here in Galatians, Paul shows us and calls us to that, the power of that gospel gutsy boldness. He, and we see here the, the gospel courage to confront, 
gospel conviction to persuade and gospel communion or union to die. Gospel courage to confront. But when Cephas or Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And what we find here is that in Jerusalem, uh, under a leader named James, some leaders came to Antioch. And before this, Peter was found to be eating with the Gentiles very comfortably. You might recall that in Acts, when God put Peter in a dream, he had three dreams with these unclean animals and pigs and, you know, crabs and lobsters and all these unclean things coming down from the heavens on a sheet. And, and uh, he was told by Christ, rise up and eat. And, and he says, never, Lord, I would never touch those unclean things. And three times he, he did that. And eventually Peter got the message that God had no longer called these things unclean and that he was called now to take the gospel to the Gentiles, the people that were considered unclean before. And so Cornelius, the centurion, was the next person that Peter saw. But what we find is that Peter began to eat and drink and have fellowship without any hindrance with the Gentiles. Uh, some would say probably eating baby-back ba baby barbecues, spare ribs, and shrimp scampi. But then, these various leaders from Jerusalem, or from James, came, and it says that he was afraid because of certain men, and that they were connected to the circumcision group. This was the group that demanded that anyone who would become a member of the church would have to follow the Jewish laws, the kosher laws, the the dietary laws, and of course, if you're a man, that you would also need to be circumcised. You had to, in order to become a Christian or to become a member of the church, you had to become culturally Jewish. And so apparently Peter began to follow those words and those ideas. He, re, he pulled himself back from eating with the rest of the Gentiles, and he even led Barnabas astray in his hypocrisy. And what you need to recognize is that this segregation, this cultural religious segregation was an attack against a core doctrine of the faith, justification by faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone. You see, the way we enter into the kingdom of heaven is not by conformity to particular religious standards. It is by Christ alone. And so this heresy, uh, their hypocrisy was wrong-headed actions that flowed from wrong-headed thinking. Their return to legalism became a return to nationalism and to racism and to ethnic pride and to superiority and cultural exclusivity, a total denial of the gospel that unites the true community. And for this, Paul would not be silent. He would fight. But you must recognize that there were major cultural forces that were probably active that were pushing Peter towards this. It says that there was this circumcision group and there were men from James that came to Antioch. And it's perceived by many 
that the circumcision group were a group that was actually persecuting. These were Jewish non-Christians that were actually leading a persecution against the church itself. And the Jewish leaders, or the from James, had come to Antioch and were telling Peter that everybody is watching him, and the word has come back to Jerusalem that he's been eating with the Gentiles, and it's creating great persecution against the Christian church in Jerusalem. And so, Peter, remember how prominent you are. You're the first among equals. The report has come back that you're eating with Gentiles. You really don't care about the law. You just are doing your own thing. And so the circumcision group was becoming resolved to attack these Christians. You know, it's one thing to be flexible. But Peter felt like he had to do what he had to do to protect the persecution. He was motivated probably by sincere compassion. But Paul sees it differently. Because what Peter was doing was striking at the very heart of the gospel. And Martin Luther King said, Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. And I was thinking about what it took for Paul to confront Peter. You, know, you think about Paul. You know, he wasn't with the other apostles for those three years he wasn't in that team. He didn't have that fellowship. He didn't have that relational connection, that history. He was kind of this weird apostle, you know. He has this experience with Christ on this road to Damascus individually. He goes away by himself for these three years. And now he has to confront not just one of the apostles, but the head apostle, the one that Jesus said on this Rock, I will build my church. You know, none of the other apostles apparently caught the nuances or the drift away from the gospel. And so Paul had to step up, and not only did he have to step up, but he, he was stepping up all by himself. When you think about it, it says even Barnabas was led astray. And Barnabas was the son of encouragement, the, the brother that would come with him. But now Barnabas had been even led astray in this. Paul, in essence, was all alone. There was another Christian who was all alone, facing unbelievable forces in his day. Athanasius, he was born in 298 A.D. in Egypt. He, uh, in, he was in his early 20s, and he was a deacon in the Church of Alexandria, North Africa. And during that time, the doctrine of the deity of Christ came under attack by a highly influential pastor by the name of Arius. Arius taught that Jesus was a created being, that he wasn't God. He wasn't divinity. He was a created being. He was a son, a small s of God. And so this heresy became known as the Arian heresy, and it sparked a flame throughout the empire, and it would dominate the church for 60 years. And here's this 20-year-old man, by a deacon, by the name of Athanasius. He's 40 years younger than Arius. And God would use this young man to contend for the deity of Christ. And so this is an encouragement to any young men, young women. 
Don't back down when it's dealing with the truths of the gospel. Fight. So Athanasius would endure decades of persecution. He was banished from the church. He was sent into exile five times, framed for murder, threatened with death, slandered by emperors and bishops, all for standing firm for the doctrine of the deity of Christ. In the end, he prevailed. Truth was preserved. The church has stood on his shoulders ever since. Because the reality is, if Jesus is not the Son of God, if he is not very God of very God, then we are still in our sins. Because only God can forgive our sins, you see. It was at the heart who Jesus was. He claimed to be I am. He claimed to be God of very God. There was a point where an emperor, Theodosius, demanded Athanasius to cease his opposition to Arius. And the emperor reproved him and says, do you not realize that all the world is against you? And Athanasius quickly answered, then I am against the world. <laughs> Where do you get the courage to confront? Where do you get that power? You not only need that courage, but you also need to have the convictions to persuade. And so we see these convictions coming out in these persuasions, the defense or the apologetic of this gospel. And he says to Peter before them all, if you, though, a Jew, live like a Gentile, and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? And he really gets to the heart of the argument. You know, Peter, he hadn't been conforming to all of the laws. He was, he was living like a Gentile, but now he is forcing Gentiles to conform to the Jewish laws. It's it the epitome of hypocrisy, two-faced. And so he is outlining this whole argument. And what we find here is that if you were to talk to Peter before this incident, and you were to ask Peter, Peter, you know, what do you believe how you're saved? And Peter would have given you all the correct Bible answers. I believe I am saved by faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone. He would have given you all of those things. So his creed what he believed was correct but his conduct his actions was wrong he, his orthodoxy what he would say you know his the truth of the the, the truth and this the what he he would declare as truth was correct but his orthopraxy was hypocrisy and wrong it was not in line with the truth and you can't have an orthodoxy and an orthopraxy at different ends and think that you are in line with the truth. They both have to be together. And Paul and Peter's actions were, were revealing at the core that he did not practice the gospel that he was preaching. And so he gives him this argument, if we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one is justified, and, and everyone would say amen. But if in our endeavor, and that's in our works to, to try to resurrect the codes and the laws of the, of the Jewish community, the, the, all the ceremonial laws to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. 
Is Christ then a servant of sin? If, is Christ telling us to go back to those laws which we can never conform to and never achieve? And so then we're all back into sin? It's not just Christ that saves us, but it's Christ and the law that saves us, and we continue to live in sin? That's ridiculous. He's, he's showing the absurdity of that argument. Certainly not. He says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And so Paul is giving this argument. And, you know, Paul could also say in 1 Corinthians 9, you know, to the Jew I became like a Jew in order to win the Jews. So he could, he, you know, and then he says, and to the Gentiles I can become like a Gentile. I can eat with them. I, I can be with them. But to a Jew, and he actually had Timothy circumcised in order to be able to cut down any kind of barrier so that he could, he could demonstrate his his union and his desire to win people to Christ. But he did not have Timothy circumcised in order to fulfill a law for acceptance before God because he refused that for Titus is what we found. Now, here's the thing. Paul looks like a chameleon. On one level, he can switch around. He's very flexible. But now with Peter, it seems like he's being very inflexible. What's the issue here? The issue is, it's at the heart of the gospel. Peter's actions were saying, we are not saved by Christ alone. We are saved by Christ and what we do. And you see, anytime you add something to the gospel, it is no longer the gospel. It is no longer good news. Now, Paul did not say, to, be, to, to win an adulterer, I will be an adulterer. You know, he was affirming that he's under Christ's law. But here we find this framework that Paul outlines and he presents this picture before Peter and you must understand that when Paul went to Peter he did it publicly because Peter was public and he was public in what he was doing but he also did it with Peter in a way to win him he was winsome he was persuasive he did it be out of gospel love he didn't just say to Peter stop being a racist he encourages him to come back to grace in a dignifying, winsome manner. You know, as I talk, some of you might say, man, this is really complex, Pastor Greg. All this, these doctrines and all this stuff, you know, I'm, I'm trying to stay with you. But here's the deal. If Peter, the head of the church, lost his way, we can too. If the apostles lost their way, we can too. What's the answer? We need to stay close to Jesus. And we need to stay close to his word because there's so many forces that will seek to show us another way or to add new things to it. And I have to uh, give credit to uh, Daniel Brown who put a Facebook uh, illustration up that I'm going to share with you. Any others? You know, sometimes we, uh, people want you to dress the right way to come to church, you know, and, and, and sometimes churches will put certain standards before you when people need Jesus, you know. You give people Jesus, and he'll work on their lives, but if you start putting standards and requirements in front of them before they come to, to know Christ, that's the law. Jesus doesn't do that, and so this one guy comes to church. He's in his shorts. He's in his tennis shoes. He's, he's got a tank top on, He's sitting in this formal church, and the pastor afterwards, 
after the service is obviously upset and he comes to this young man he says young man he said he says I'm glad that you're here but uh, before you come back I want you to go home and I want you to ask the Lord what is the appropriate attire that you should be wearing to church well it's the next week the young man comes back and by he's wearing his tennis shoes shorts and a tank top and the pastor is getting really irate. And after the service, he comes up to the young man and says, young man, didn't I tell you to go and ask the Lord what the appropriate attire was? And the young man says, oh, I did. And he said, he's never been to your church, and he doesn't know what you people wear. <laughs> and the thing is, is that a lot of times we will put up fronts or obligations or standards that Jesus never does. And anytime we start adding things and creating barriers for people to be able to experience Christ, we, we have lost the gospel. We have to be very protective. And what's the answer? We've got to be very close to Jesus, and we've got to stay close to his word. Uh, so we're, we're having this thing called essentials, uh, the essentials of Jesus. There's 100 Bible readings and about Christ, and, and we are, as a church are going to go on a journey to try to just keep giving ourselves to understanding the gospel through the scriptures. But the final thing is, to have this gutsy gospel boldness, we not only need the power to confront, the courage to confront, the convictions to persuade, but we also need the communion to die, or the union with Christ to die. And so Paul says, for through the law, I die to the law so that I might live for God. Paul found the power to stand alone, to publicly and courageously face down Peter, the chief apostle. And Paul engages this emotionally and explosive encounter. Where did Paul get that power and that courage from? I believe it's in this passage. He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Martin Luther said this on this verse, I have nothing to do with the law, cries Paul. He could not have uttered anything more devastating to the prestige of the law. He declares that he does not care for the law, that he does not intend ever to be justified by the law, to be declared legally righteous by the law. To be dead to the law means to be free from, of the law. That What is right then what right, then, has the law to accuse me or to hold anything against me? When you see a person squirming in the clutches of the law, say to him, Brother, get things straight. You let the law talk to your conscience. Make it talk to your flesh. Wake up, believe Christ, and conquer and the conqueror of law and sin. Faith in Christ will lift you high above the law in the heaven of grace, Though the law and sin remain, they no longer concern you because you are dead to the law and dead to sin. You're dead. You're dead to the law. You're dead to the accusations of the law and the things that say that you're not acceptable to Christ because of what you have done or what you have not done. There was a great scene in uh, the, uh, the Band of Brothers uh, movie series on World War II and a young soldier was watching an experienced veteran in the fight, and he noticed that he was fearless in the face of the onslaughts of the enemy fire. 
And he was marveling at this seasoned uh, warrior as he faced that. And he was wondering, how did he do this? And the, and the soldier says, the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you are already dead. The sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function. All war depends on it. The sooner you recognize, Christian, that you are already dead, the sooner you'll be able to fight in this war because there's the onslaughts of all the forces that will tell us that we are not acceptable to God unless we do something, unless we're something more. There's so many forces that are informing us of who we are. I know who I am, we sang. The thing is, is that there's all these voices telling us, you are what you look like, you're how strong you are, you're how much money you have, how smart you are. You have all of those voices that are always telling you that you have to be more. I have those voices. I have to fight those voices. Um, this past week was a short week. We had Monday was you know Labor Day, and and we we're getting ready for a congregational meeting. It's taking extra demands on my time, and uh, Thursday's normally my day off, and and I actually worked nine hours that day. And I told Maria, I said, listen, I'll make sure that I take off on Friday. I told her earlier in the week. Friday comes, my sermon's not ready, and I'm feeling all the pressure. And that morning. I was getting ready to go to the library to study. I was just, and I told her, I said, I'm just going to work a half a day. I just, I have to just work a half a day. And she looked at me and her countenance fell. And, and it was one of those moments that I realized I lied, <laughs> you know, and, and I was wrong. And I, and the real issue was I need to trust Jesus more <laughs> for the time that I've had and to not rob my wife of of our time together. And so by faith, I said, okay, I'm going to trust you, Jesus, but man, this is so hard. Why is this so hard? You know, if you struggle with anxieties and worries, if you struggle with overworking and have a hard time resting, if you struggle with thinking about what others think about you or coveting or lusting or forgiving others or struggling giving your wealth away or struggling with caving into your fears and any addictions, the core issue is not the particular struggles. The core issue is what is beneath those struggles and the forces of sin underneath the sin. And the core issue is believing the gospel or not believing the gospel deeply enough of God's grace or experiencing the gospel of God's grace enough for you. And that's why Martin Luther said, we need to beat and pound it into our heads because the devil rages continually. And so, by God's grace, I did not violate that day the way I intended to. And I had to do some warfare. I had to do warfare in this sanctuary that God helped me to have enough of what I need to say to these people so I don't humiliate myself. Because I have these expectations that I have. I don't know where they come from. They come from certain forces that I have to perform better. I have to do more. I have to study more. I mean, even as I was praying to the Lord last night in this sanctuary, 
I was actually having a good time praying. And uh, I was, and I told her, I said, you know, I'm having such a good time praying, I really don't want to go and work on my sermon. I said, this prayer is distracting me from working on my sermon because I'm having such a good time just being with you. I don't really, you know, I feel like I'm avoiding work. I said, how stupid is that? That is the core of our strength, is our relationship with Christ. And so Paulkin says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. You know, this becomes very personal. Paul is talking we, 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 we. Now he's talking I. Jesus living in me. What does that mean? It's not just, you know, it's true that the Holy Spirit lives in us. And John 14 talks about the Father makes his home within us with the Son. That's unbelievable spiritual truths. But what he's talking about here is the nature of justification. You've been declared righteous. You've been declared perfect. And so when I say, Lord, I'm afraid that I'm not going to have a perfect sermon, he says, you need to rest in a perfect Savior. (laughs) And when I say, you know, I don't know how to rest, and he says, well, just, just come to me. I'll help you rest. You see, you have so many forces working against you. So he says, listen, I thought about you before the world was created. That's what Ephesians 1 tells us. Before the foundations of the world, I adopted you. And then the scriptures tell us that Jesus created all things. I created you. I came for you, took on flesh for you. I lived for you. I died for you. I rose from the dead for you. I ascended to heaven for you. I reign for you. I'm interceding for you. I love you. What are those other voices that are trying to persuade you to follow something else? Jesus loves you to the very depths. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. What Christ did on the cross, I was there. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He lives in me. He lives for me. He lives for you. He's real. Give your hearts to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this Galatians passage that opens us to uh, the forces of grace that uh, we need to hear. I pray that we would grow in our sensitivity of this gospel, that we would be sensitive to know when there are dark forces that will seek to drift us away, that will seek to tell us that our acceptance is on the basis of some kind of performance that we do. Lord, you just love us because you love us by faith through grace alone. There's nothing else that we can do. You just love us. Lord, that is just unbelievable. Help us to rest in you in that. And we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. And now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. Amen.